0: We're in the middle of a series called Questioning God, whereby we're uh, asking um, questions that that we feel like people are asking, questions that are um, relevant to the known human experience uh, that we think um, our city is asking, that we think people that know Jesus, don't know Jesus are asking. And what we're seeking to do is is ultimately have a conversation uh, together here that in some way uh, is um, reflective of the kinds of conversations that uh, we want to have with people that don't, know, know, don't yet know Jesus, but also with one another. Um, and, and so we're trying to take the posture of, of a missionary Uh, We we believe the church is uh, a missionary agency, that God uses his church to reach the city. And so one of the ways that we're doing that is just through this sermon series, having this conversation, inviting people to come participate in it with us, but then also equipping those of us who are part of the church to know then how to talk about some of these things. Um, And it's been a good series. It's been uh, very different. Normally what we do here is teach uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible, but this morning... Uh, and through this whole series, this has been a little bit more like uh, like a lecture, like a classroom, than it has been uh, like a sermon. And so this morning is going to be no different. However, we are going to start with the Bible. So if you do have a Bible, grab it and go to Matthew chapter seven, because that's where we're going to be. Um, and right before we jump in, I just want to say a big congratulations to two sweet people that are sitting here right in front of me. David and Brianna are here, everybody. And if you don't know, David and Brianna, uh, they just had a baby, baby number two sweet baby boy named Ruben. Yeah, give it up for David and Brianna. And they are sleeping at night, I asked, and they are sleeping at night. So make sure to go say hi to baby and congratulate them. Uh, The question we're going to answer this morning, uh, which was set up, I think, fairly well by that video conversation. And that video is a clip. It's about a 15-minute uh, conversation that they have that sits within a broader uh, hour-long interview. But there's a 15-minute conversation they have about that particular issue, which I'd encourage you to go find on, on YouTube. But the question we're going to seek to answer this morning is this. Is there any way to make sense of the pain and the suffering in this life? Is there any way to make sense of the pain and the suffering? In this life, now I want to clarify this question before I start to answer it, because this question does um, have have a subtle but significant difference to the way this question often gets asked and talked about. Often, when we talk about uh, the issue of pain and suffering as it pertains to the Christian faith or the human experience, a, a lot of times uh, what we do is we talk about the question like this. We we frame it slightly differently. We we would frame it something like this: How can a loving God exist? if there is evil and suffering in the world. This is classically known as the problem of pain or the problem of evil and suffering. And this is a presuppositional question or a presuppositional argument that is used uh, to attempt to disprove the existence of God. Now, I think that's a good question. I think it's a question that needs to be talked about. It's a question that needs to be explored. In fact, it's a question we've answered from uh, the front of this room many times in the history of our church. You can read lots of books about that. You can uh, go on our website and listen to sermons that have been preached uh, seeking to answer that question. But, but I want to be clear, that's not the question that I'm seeking to answer this morning. This morning, today's question is more aimed at the utility of our beliefs, so I'm not trying to prove the existence of God in the face of evil and suffering. Instead, I'm asking a different question. I'm asking the question, how does your worldview work? What actually makes sense of the pain and suffering that exists in the world as we experience it? Is there any way to make sense of it? Is there any way to properly understand pain and suffering? Is the worldview that I possess and life as I experience it and know it and what I believe about the world, does it have room within it to make sense of the inevitable pain and suffering that will come my way? Does it, does it possess the resources, if you will, that I could draw on when hardship comes to be able to navigate those turbulent waters? So so I want you to understand the difference between those two questions, because some of you may be here, and you may be asking the question, well, how could a loving God exist if there is evil and suffering in the world? And again, that's a good question, but I'm not actually going to go down that road today. I'm going to go down this slightly different road to more talk about our worldview and how it works. So if you do have a Bible, go quickly to Matthew chapter 7, because what I want to do is start uh, with a passage of scripture whereby Jesus um, gives us, I I think, a helpful picture of the human experience in the human life. So this this verse, these verses that I'm I'm going to read, come at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we taught through uh, back in the spring, I believe. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus summarizes all of his teachings by, by essentially giving a call to action or, or, or a challenging uh, call to the people who are listening to his teaching. So here's what he says, Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 24 uh, down to 27. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, the sermon that he just preached, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, it beat against the house, and yet it did not fall because its foundation, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash." So Jesus here essentially summarizes uh, the human life like this. He says there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who build their life on the rock. There are people who build their life on the sand. And really what he's talking about here, for as it relates to our conversation this morning, is the worldview that you subscribe to. The, the world that you are building your house on, which is your life. What is the, the underpinning of that? And then what Jesus says is it is inevitable that rain will come, storms will come, wind will come. And how will your house stand in the face of those inevitable storms, in the face of inevitable pain and suffering? And so what I want to do this morning, and I've done this each week, is is laid out very clearly where I'm going to go. Uh, so you can follow along with me. I want to ask three questions that I think flow naturally out of this text and will help us make sense of this topic. The first one is this, what is your life built on? The second question is, how is that working in the face of pain and suffering? And then the third question is, what does the Christian story offer to those who are suffering? So again, this is going to read and feel more like a lecture than it is like a sermon. Um, And so, again, as I've said every week, some of you are going to really appreciate this and others uh, not so much, but hang with me. So let's start with the first question. What is your life built on? Uh, In his book, What Does It All Mean, Thomas Nagel, who's uh, a philosopher at uh, NYU, he wrote this. He said, I cannot help but wonder if the capital M meaning question comes from too great of a sense of our own importance. The grave is life's only goal. And perhaps it's ridiculous to go on taking ourselves too seriously. Nagel's point is that if you have the expectation that there ought to be meaning in life, meaning in this world, then it is inevitable that you will be disappointed and life will have a degree of absurdity to it. If you start with that presupposition, then life is going to be challenging. But if you just accept the world as he sees it, one without any, what he describes, capital M, meaning, then the same sense of angst around discovering meaning and all the absurdity of life would actually go away. Now, while I certainly don't subscribe to Nagel's conclusions, I do believe that at the core of his assertion, he is indeed correct. Because at the core of what he's saying is that what you believe about the world matters it deeply impacts how you experience the world. And this is actually Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 7, that there's two foundations, uh, and that the, 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 there's a very important question that we must ask, and, and I would contend, I would argue, that it's probably actually the most important question, and that is, what is your life built on? What is the capital M meaning that you subscribe to? What is the thing that drives who you are as a person, how you understand the world around you, because that then becomes the interpretive lens for all of your lived human experience. But there's something interesting that's happened in our culture, and particularly in the West, that we have this inability to properly define capital M meaning, that it's elusive. And to be frank, this is a recent phenomenon, something that is really unique to us as a, as a society over the last hundred or so years. If you go back and read through ancient literature and you read philosophers, you read thinkers, uh, the meaning question was talked about. The meaning question was explored. They, they certainly asked questions about how we discern and ascertain what our capital M meaning is, what life is all about, what the purpose of life is about. But here's the interesting thing. There was never a lack of options, they always landed somewhere. Traditionally, meaning in the, in, in the meta sense, in the sense of it, you know, an overarching meaning that defines reality for the human has always been anchored to some sort of religion, some sort of systematic or institutional religion, to a belief in God. Oftentimes it was based in a community, even if you go to to places where they don't have necessarily institutional religion and there's tribal religious experiences, there's a sense from most people, for most of human history, if not all of human history up until this recent snapshot that is what we know as the modern era, that capital M meaning was actually something that could be attained. It was something that could be found. There was a place for it in our world. And regardless of what it was that was informing the way people live, there was something there that could satisfy the human craving to find meaning in life. And it wasn't until, as I've already said, just recently that we started to hear thinkers and writers and philosoph- uh, philosophers rather, acknowledge that there is a meaning-shaped hole in the center of our culture and really as we've talked about this at great lengths the the meaning shaped hole that that we experience in our culture is really just the chickens of postmodernism coming home to roost it's the fruit of what we've been Uh, espousing as a culture for some time. Now, again, I've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to go too far down this uh, rabbit trail this morning, but postmodernism is essentially the rejection of all absolutes, and with it comes uh, a deep skepticism and a rejection of any ability to be certain about anything. Again, to go back to Jesus's analogy, this would be the equivalent of building your house on the sand. And the ironic thing about this postmodern reality that we're living in, or at least the fruit of postmodernism, because now we're starting to see a massive shift away from postmodernism and a a rejection to postmodernism, is that the same system of thought that got us to this place, this place of, of uncertainty that has caused us to have the inability to discern and define what meaning actually is and what the human experience is actually all about, it lacks the resources to answer the questions that it's been asking and so it's left this vacuum we don't know what life is all about as a culture we're not sure we're we're uncertain so what do we do as a culture what do we do how how has the meaning shaped whole in our culture Been filled because we are insatiable creatures that long for meaning and purpose and identity, so we inevitably go searching for these things. And if there are no answers out there, what is our response? Well, philosophers have stated that we have become reliant on what they call created meanings. Created meanings. A created meaning is a meaning that is subjective and based primarily on the experience and feelings, and it's not anchored to any authority or truth claim. So so in other words, we're all meaning machines. We crave it. Uh, We must have it, lest we fall into a pit of despair. So what do we do? What do we do? What are we going to do about this? We're going to create our own meaning. It may be based on our experience, it may be based on our perspective, it may be based on uh, where we grew up, what we've been exposed to, but the bottom line is we're going to create something. And the reality is for many of us, we've probably not necessarily wrestled through uh, what the capital and meaning of our lives are, but yet we still subscribe to something just by osmosis, by, by a function of living in a particular cultural moment, being exposed to a number of cultural influences, our worldview is being formed and defined for us, not by us. This is what we talked about a number of weeks ago where we talked about absorbed beliefs, that we're all like belief sponges and and our experience starts to get kind of built and, and, or sorry, our experience and our, and, our, and our history and our culture, it starts to fill up our sponges and that forms what we believe. That a lot of times we haven't actually come to these conclusions on our own, but rather we've arrived there by accident because we're just being filled up all the time uh, with stuff that has now un- helped us understand what we believe, even though we don't really understand what we believe. Well, well, this is exactly how we've come to the conclusion about the capital M meaning of our lives as a culture. We just sort of find ourselves here, not really having thought through it. Now let me hit pause here for just a second, because some of you might be thinking, uh, okay, what on earth are you talking about here, Sinusol? I thought this was about pain and suffering. You started with a really cutesy clip, got us all emotional, and now you're boring us with the philosophy of meta-meanings. Well, remember the question remember the question we're asking, is there any way to make sense of the pain and suffering in life? Is there any way to make sense of the pain and suffering in life? How you make sense of anything is completely predicated on your interpretive lens. It's completely predicated on the capital M meaning that you subscribe to. Again, to go back to Jesus's analogy, it's completely predicated on the foundation of which you are building your house on. But the reality is, in this cultural moment, for many of us, we haven't thought about that. We're just living. We're just going through the motions. And we don't actually know why we exist. We don't actually know why we're here. There isn't a grand story That is pointing us in a particular direction. We're just living. So I want to ask the second question, which is this. How's that working? How is it working? In this cultural moment, how is it working? Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, you're going to build your house on something. You're going to have a worldview. You're going to have an interpretive lens by which you build your life. And what is certain, and I cannot imagine anybody would contest this is that storms will come. Hardship will come. Pain will come. There's a reason that when we watched that clip that we watched in the introduction is it resonated with all of us because we all can understand on some level the hardship that life inevitably will bring. So, So let's talk on a meta level for just a moment. How is our Western society doing when it comes to making sense of pain and suffering? But Tim Keller says this in his book, Making Sense of God, which just to be clear, I've leaned quite heavily on in this series. And let me just say this about Keller before I read this quote. He is one of the most winsome and charitable individuals that I have ever read. And here I would say this is one of the most scathing critiques I've ever heard him make about anything. Here's what he says. Western secular culture is perhaps the worst in history, At helping its members face suffering. For secular culture, the meaning of life is essentially boiled down to be free and choose what makes you happy. Suffering can only come against and ultimately destroy that meaning. What would cause Keller, and he's not the only one, he's not alone in this camp, to have such a scathing critique on the Western culture's ability to make sense of pain and suffering is simple. He's walking out the Western worldview to its logical conclusion. He's just taking it where it goes naturally if truth is relative and the meaning of your life and my life is relative and we're left to find our own meaning, it's up to us to to just find or create our own meaning. Where do we go? We always go to the same place. We turn to ourselves. And so what this means for us then is that our personal pleasure becomes the highest ideal. Now, none of us would actually cop to that, none of us would say, yes, I believe that the capital M meaning of my life is my own pleasure. Because that sounds really selfish. And the reason none of us would want to cop to that is because then we would look silly. And the reason we don't want to look silly is because our highest uh, cultural ideal is that we would be, uh, you know, we would experience pleasure. And if people think that we're silly, then we're not experiencing pleasure. So you can see where I'm going with this. The reality is, most of us are living for ourselves. Now, let me, let me nuance this a little bit, because that, that doesn't sound very nice. To, to be fair, it may be channeled through a noble means. It may be channeled through your family, or your spouse, or your children, or maybe even your church. It, it may be channeled through a charitable cause or a political ideal. But the bottom line is this, we are all meaning machines and we inevitably attach ourselves to something that will provide meaning and the net result is this, that our lives must go well in order for that meaning to be realized. So here's the kicker, coming back to the question, how do we make sense of the pain and suffering in this life? when the inevitable pain and suffering comes, we don't have the resources to deal with it. We have no ability to fit it into our worldview, into our framework, into our lives. And here's what happens. It crushes you. It destroys you. Now, now let me just be clear because I wanna be not just clear, but careful. What I'm not saying is that if you have the right worldview, you will robotically walk through pain, suffering, and hardship and not experience real raw emotions as a result of that. It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is if you do not have the right worldview, if you do not have a worldview that possesses the resources to make sense of the inevitable hardship, the inevitable pain and suffering that you have in your life, it won't just be sad. It will end you. It will ruin you. As one author wrote, the secular approach to meaning can leave you radically vulnerable to the inevitable hardships and realities of life in this world. So so it's worth asking some questions of your life. It's worth asking, what is my life built on? It's worth asking, what is my capital M meaning? What is the meaning of my life? And not like the, you know, for, for us here... On a Sunday morning in a church gathering, right? I, I know the answer that you feel like you're supposed to say, but, but what is the actual highest ideal? What is the thing that drives me? And, and listen, to be f- clear and fair, I say this a lot to people you cannot fake your core values. You can say one thing, but the life you live actually demonstrates exactly what you believe. And so before we can even start to talk about pain and suffering and hardship and the Christian story and how those things interact, we have to wrestle with, with an even bigger question, which is, what do I believe? What is my life built on? What, do I, what am I actually worshipping? What am I actually giving myself over to? What, am I actually, what actually drives me? What actually gets me up in the morning? What is the interpretive lens that I filter every decision of my life through? And it doesn't matter if you're a church person or this is your first time ever in a church gathering or, or you, you know, you, what, like it doesn't matter where you're at in that spectrum. You have something. Something that you're building your life on. And, and it's worth just unthreading that, having that conversation, being honest with yourself. Because the answer to that question is going to be the answer to how do I make sense of the inevitable pain and suffering that I will experience. So then let's go to the third question, which is this. What does the Christian story have to offer me? So remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that there's two foundations to build on, right? There's sand, there's the sand, and then there's the rock. The the sand, which cannot stand up to the storms, cannot stand up to the pain, cannot stand up to the suffering, cannot stand up to the hardship, and then there's the rock which can. Well, in a similar way, not the same way to be sure, but in a similar way, philosophers have described two pathways to understanding meaning. So there's the first way, which we've already talked about, created meaning. Created meaning, meaning that that is subjective and is based primarily on experience and feelings and not anchored to any truth, uh, sorry, any authority or any truth claim. But there's another type of meaning that philosophers talk about, and this is what, what they call discovered meaning. And this is meaning that is inherent and it is assigned. Historically, this has been anchored to some sort of belief in God. Now again, this is a little bit nerdy and a little bit technical, but it's worth unthreading for just a moment because it helps us understand the difference between the two. What separates created meaning from discovered meaning is that those with some form of discovered meaning, some form of meaning that is inherent and assigned, some form of meaning that has historically uh, been anchored to some sort of belief in God, here's what they do. They relocate the, the most important thing, the most significant thing. They relocate the main meaning of their lives into some sort of transcendent focal point or reference point. In other words, there's some type of promise that supersedes beyond the temporary pleasures of this world. And so my point in in helping us understand this is simply that when you have a meaning that has a transcendent reference point, when there is, when this life is not all that there is, then pain and suffering isn't meaningless. In fact, it has a place And it fits somewhere within the worldview. If if you were just to study all of the major world religions and just about any type of belief in the supernatural in general, I'm not going to speak about all of them exclusively, but in some way, shape, or form, they have the capacity to make some sense of where pain and suffering fits into their worldview. Now, I'm not advocating the truthfulness of those claims. I am just saying somebody... Who holds a view where where this life is not all there is can actually fit pain and suffering into their worldview. And now we have to grapple with the reality that not all meanings are created equal. In other words, even if they are discovered meanings, not all foundations that we build on can provide the same resources to sustain us through the inevitable pain and suffering. So then this brings us to the question, The question that I really want to get to, what is it that Christianity uniquely has to say to this issue of pain and suffering that sets it apart? Another way to ask this question, and this is sort of the the meta question that we've been asking in this entire series, what is it about Christianity that makes the most sense of the lived human experience? And the lived human experience certainly includes pain and suffering. What does Christianity have to offer that no other worldview has to offer. And again, we're not talking about truthfulness at this point. We're talking about utility. Now, I happen to believe that the Christian worldview and religion is true because it's useful, and it's useful because it's true. But I'm not making a case for the truthfulness of Christianity. I'm making a case for its utility here and how it makes the most sense of the experience that you live, and it is the most helpful for those who are going through pain and suffering. So so I want to give us three unique ways that the Christian story makes sense of pain. The first one is this. The Christian story acknowledges that pain has a purpose. The Christian story acknowledges that pain has a purpose. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2, uh, Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Now, again, if we were to take a vote here, and I said, would you rather go to a funeral or would you rather go to a party, most of us would probably vote party. But yet, Solomon says, nope, you're better to go to a funeral. Why? Because when you go to a funeral, something happens. When you go to a party, everything's great, you're laughing, you have a good time, you dance with your friends, you go home, you sleep off, whatever you went through the, you know, that night, and you wake up and, and you're on with your life. But w- when you go to a funeral, there's something that happens. It causes you to become introspective. It causes you to ask deeper questions about your life. It causes you to start to ask transcendent questions about your life. Why am I here? What is the point of life? But we don't ask those questions when everything is going great. And there's something significant about the Christian story, and I don't even know if most Christians subscribe to this regardless of the fact that this is what the Christian story teaches. In the Christian story, the ultimate goal of our lives is not happiness, It is not a party. The ultimate goal of the life of a Christian is that we would become one with the God who made us and that we would seek after him. Now, if what Solomon is saying is true, that it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party... Because when you go to a funeral, you start to ask deeper questions, more profound questions, harder questions. You actually start to dig deep into your soul and start to try and figure out who you are, who made you, why you're here. And Christianity actually can give us a place for pain and suffering. Pain, suffering, hardship has the ability to press us further into ourselves. And what happens when we come further and further into ourselves? Eventually, we come to the end of ourselves. And when we come to the end of ourselves, if we're humble, if we're wise, we realize we have nowhere else to turn but God. As C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The the Christian story gives us the resources to discover that in the moment, we don't always know what is good for us. I don't know about your life, but when I look back over my life, the times and moments that I have grown the most have been through pain, suffering, and hardship. I'll just be honest. When life is good, I pray less. When life is hard, I pray more. And, and this principle supersedes spirituality. This, this goes to just about every area of your life. If you want to grow in any area of your life, it almost always comes through Pain, perseverance, and hardship. Well, we talked a lot about this last week this idea of limitations, that limitations actually liberate us. Well, this is not that dissimilar. If any of you are parents, you understand what this is like. I'm not saying this is a perfect analogy, but it is indeed an analogy that is helpful. You discipline your children, they get mad. Because they don't understand. Why can't I do this? Why can't I have that? Why can't I jump off this? It seems like a good idea. And what is the classic parental response? I'm doing this because I love you. It doesn't always feel good, but it makes sense. Leslie Newbigin, who's a missiologist and philosopher, he uses this analogy to help us understand the way that God uses pain and suffering in our lives. He calls it the no argument. No-see-um. no are these really tiny microscopic bugs that you can't actually see with the human eye. And you go, he talks, describes this uh, experience he has when he was in India as a missionary, and he goes into uh, a tent or a, his lodging place, and he asks, "Are these bugs there?" And the answer is, "No, they're they're you know I can't see them, but they're there." And he uses this as an analogy to say, "We can't always see what God is doing. We can't always see how God is." working in our lives. We can't always see what God is doing, but just because we can't see what he's doing doesn't mean that he isn't doing something. If I look back over the timeline of my life, the most profound moments that I've ever experienced have come out of the deepest places of sorrow and while I would never wish to go back there and walk those turbulent waters again the reality is I also wouldn't undo them because God did some of his best work in my life now that alone is not good news well, it's good news, but it's not great news. The beautiful reality of the Christian story is it actually gets better than that. Christianity doesn't just merely make sense of pain and suffering. It actually moves to this place where, where it can actually help us in the midst of pain and suffering. That leads me to the second, second way that the Christian story uniquely provides resources to make sense of pain and suffering, and that is this, that Christianity offers comfort in the midst of Pain. Uh, If you're familiar with the Christian story, uh, then you know at the center of the Christian story is the cross of Jesus. The picture that is painted for us of the cross of Jesus is one of great suffering. If you just thumb your pages through the Gospels, through the whole Bible, really, you see all these instances where where the cross is described as the place of of great suffering. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 4 prayed that as he was on the cross, his soul was overwhelmed. In Luke chapter 22, the night before he went to the cross... He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his soul was in such anguish that he literally sweat droplets of blood, and he literally prayed to his heavenly Father that he would take this cup or take this pain or this suffering from him. In Isaiah 53, uh, describing the, you know, foretelling the, the death of Jesus and describing the death of Jesus, says this, for his form was marred or broken beyond any human likeness. And in Matthew chapter 27, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he's about to breathe his last breath, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Jesus, we get this this picture of a God who suffers. And here's, here's why this is beautiful for us. Because God is not abstract, He's He's not indifferent, He's not far away, He's He's not, you know, like a dis uh, an absentee landlord, but rather He enters into the human experience and fully embraces pain. He knows what it is like to suffer. Jesus suffered physically, He suffered emotionally, He suffered psychologically. Jesus experienced persecution, He experienced betrayal. Uh, On the cross, there's this dynamic that exists within the Trinity whereby as Jesus is on the cross, as he's breathing his last breath, he actually experiences the the father turning his face away from the son and and God in a very real way, in, in, in a very like real way, like he actually felt what it was like to be abandoned in that moment by his father. But not only that, his heavenly father looks down The Father looks down on the Son on the cross and he knows what it's like to lose a son. God experiences pain because he felt it. So for those of us who are going through hardship, for those of us who are going through pain, we can actually go to him We can pray to him. And he doesn't just hear our prayers. He doesn't just permit our prayers. But he actually sympathizes with us. He has felt what you feel. He knows. He comforts. See, the Christian story tells of a God who is very acquainted with suffering. He's not calling out to you to just get better and get over it, but rather he bends, he enters in, he sympathizes, and he gets down into the dirt and the mud and the brokenness and the tears. And if you're anything like me, the snot-faced crying, he holds you, he says, I know. I feel what you feel. I understand. Let's walk this out together. He offers comfort. And then lastly, and I'll close with this and invite the band to come up. Not only does Christianity offer hope in the midst of pain and suffering, uh, sorry, comfort, Christianity off, also offers hope in the midst of pain and suffering. Uh, there's this beautiful word in the Christian story. It's probably the main theme, I would contend. And it's this word, redemption. It's this picture This idea that God will one day make everything wrong right. That his plan for the world is to restore everything to the way that it ought to be. You know that sense or that feeling you have when you experience or when you see something that is hard, when you see something that is broken, when you see human injustice, and you have this angst within you that says, that's not right. That's a normal human reaction. Well, the Christian story says... That God's plan is to actually take everything that is wrong and undo it, to make it right. But there's something beautiful about the way that the Christian story describes how God is going to actually do it. See, what it doesn't say, what the Christian story doesn't say is that he's just going to blink or snap his fingers and then everything sad is gone. The Christian story actually describes God actually entering into the brokenness And working in and through the pain. It's genuine. It's honoring to the human experience. It's honoring to what you and I have walked through, but it's also beautiful. And what we see at the center of the Christian story is that after the pain and suffering of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus was buried into the tomb and three days later, here's what happens. He's resurrected. He's, He's made to come back to life. And it's this beautiful picture, this beautiful foreshadowing of what God is going to do in and through our world, what His plan is for all of humanity. That God is going to redeem everything. He's going to take all the pain, He's going to take all the brokenness, He's going to take all the suffering, and He's going to restore it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to make something beautiful out of the ugliness. The ugliness that was the cross brought about the beauty that is the resurrection. The ugliness that is the pain and suffering in your life, and I don't know how, and I don't even know why, friends, but somehow, way, God is going to work in and through that pain to bring about something beautiful. As I quote often, Sally Lloyd Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible says, where everything sad will come untrue. And we get this beautiful picture at the end of God's story, Revelation chapter 21. This picture that is painted for us of what that day will be like. Here's what it says They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. and He will wipe every tear from their eye and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And then this verse is not on the screen, but he said, it is done. It's done. Everything sad has come untrue. Everything broken has been restored. And you might ask, why, God, do you do it this way? My answer is, I don't know. But here's what I know. That the sweetness of having Jesus wipe away the tears from our eyes will be sweet, sweeter. Because they were there in the first place the beauty of this moment where we see Jesus face to face and he takes everything sad and makes it come untrue where he wipes away the tears and he takes away the pain will be that much sweeter because of what we have experienced on this side of eternity. Friends, God doesn't waste your suffering. What you are going through right now is not wasted. A day is coming, a moment is coming where God is going to work in it and through it for your good, where he's going to walk with you through the brokenness and you are going to meet with him in a way that is more profound than anything you have ever experienced in your entire life. And there is a day in the future that is coming where you will look Jesus in the face And that day is going to be so sweet because every hardship, every brokenness, no matter how small or how significant, will be undone and we will be in awe as we stare at Jesus. Is there any way to make sense of the pain and suffering in this life? I don't know of a way apart from Christ. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. we need you. There are many in this room who are going through the deepest waters that they have ever walked. For them, we pray, come Lord Jesus. There are many in this room who are just trying to figure this out don't know what we believe, don't know what life is about. pray, come Lord Jesus. Lord, would you meet us in this place right now where we are at? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.